America. We have a lot to talk about today because, and I'm going to try to keep this short and relatively G-rated with the idea that you could use this as a learning instructional video for how to protest and how to govern. All right. So last week we had a, a police action when our police officers in Athens, Georgia shot both tear gas and beanbag rounds into a, a group of people who were protesting in the street. All right, so this happened a little bit after midnight. But what was interesting about it, a few things that are interesting about the protest, the structure, and and the fallout. Um, one, it was a well it was a well attended program uh, protest. A few thousand people attended, and the town is not that big. It's only about a hundred thousand people. I think that includes students. Maybe hundred thousand minus students, but uh, about five thousand people were there, between three and five thousand, which means that it was. Uh, very well attended, and a good chunk of the population was there. So if you start lying about what happened to it uh, at the protest, a good number of people will be like, actually, I was I was there. <laughs> actually, I was there. <laughs> and um, uh, it didn't go down like that. So this is important because the cops ended up lying about what happened at the protest, and it put a lot of people in some sort of way watching their friends and people that they've um come to respect lie in public about you know their uh, public affairs right so we had a mayor that lied and a chief of police that told some stories and just a lot of people telling stories that they usually always tell but uh don't get caught doing so a lot of white people found out that police reports are fiction it was traumatic for them. Not traumatic for me because I know that. And I've even told them, but they don't believe it when I tell them. It has to, they have to actually see it. But then they saw it. All right, so in the police report, uh, the, the chief says like, well, you know, we didn't use rubber bullets or anything like that. And then a guy from the protest who was hit by a, um, we wouldn't do that. There were, there were tear, there were tear, tear, tear gas canisters, but no rubber bullets or anything like that. He's like, well, I was shot by something. He's like, well, you know, it must have been your imagination. Or someone said, well, you did it to yourself. He's like, I, no, but I was shot by this. Explain this. This is going to be an image. And look at that. And he was like, I, like I, 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 it came from one of your guns. And then eventually the uh, police officer admitted, well, you know, they're beanbag rounds. We did shoot some of those because we were worried about people kicking the canisters back at us. And, uh, and the, in the police report, they said, well, you know, at the, after the, in the after protest, what we were really worried about and that they looked like to be a majority of group of people who came with bad intentions, who had guns and it might, they might be looking to incite a riot. First of all, Georgia is an open carry state, so you're allowed to have guns. Um, I mean, University of Georgia is a campus carry state. So I always assume that half my students who are mostly white. Um, I just assume that half of them are strapping as I'm, you know, talking hard gender and, and, and race politics in the way that I do. I just assume that at any point in time they're like, they have guns and hopefully one of the other kids with guns will save me. But mostly I just know where to duck. Anyway, we live in a world with guns. And if you have a problem with people having guns, you don't just get to, I don't know, I you change the legislature. So some guys with guns came, six of them. They were exactly six, and I've asked multiple people who were there because there were 5,000 people there. And they said, yeah, there were, uh, and then they counted six, and then I, I've seen pictures, and pictures always all have the same six. But in the police report, it said that of the 150 after-protesters, the majority of them, or most of them, were of these gun-carrying um, gun lot, which is just 
manifestly and empirically false, but police reports are fiction. Uh, I know that, but it turns out that a lot of other people who were both at the protest and had this watched the police report learned that police reports are fiction. Police reports are fiction. I'm sure in the chat. Talk to me about <laughs> who's ever read a police report about themselves and said, this is fiction because it is. And this, we, we've normalized and the police were so lie and people have been so used to lying about it through official channels that they didn't even realize that they were lying to, to 5,000 people in a town with only a hundred thousand people. So like everybody knows somebody who was at the protest who could tell the truth. But that's how normalized this culture of lying is. It's just that when we lie on black people, especially if we lie on black males, it doesn't matter because black males are disposable. Um, so the police report says we didn't fire any rubber bullets or there were 150. Majority of them were gun-toting radicals when there were actually six. And the six left with the protest before the, the six left at like eight o'clock. And the tear gas came at midnight. So this was a tear gassing of convenience. The police wanted to go home. They were tired of these people. Um, and, and that's where we stand. So there's just a bunch of lies and a tear gassing of convenience. And with that, I'm going to hit the beat and tell you more about a little bit more of the logistics of what separates a good protest from a bad protest. To the beat, Never change the ways for the world or the government If it was the president, then I would state facts You leave it up to me, I'll paint the White House black And it can feature in your front So, what you need to know about a good protest and from a bad protest First of all, there are two, there are going to be two aims One is you need to get in front of cameras Like the goal is media The problem is, the citizens don't know your issue And the media won't cover your issue So you have to find a way to get attention to yourself so that it cover your issues. So the goal is media. Always have a press release, blah, 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 blah. Also, the second thing is power doesn't listen until you stop the functioning of power. I'll say that again. Power doesn't listening until you can prove yourself to stop the functioning of power. And this is important because people in institutional roles do not take you seriously until you become a problem for the functioning of their institution. I'll say that again. People in institutional roles, whether there are paychecks involved especially, will not take you seriously until you become a problem for their institution. Which should not be too hard considering that there's a reason why you're protesting their institution to begin with. So you'll just have to, you know, eat some risk. Um, because every functioning institution has a policing mechanism to kind of antibodies to get rid of you. But there's a way in which what you're trying to do in a protest is just show the injustice that's already embedded in the system, right? So the protest is the x-ray or the blood test that reveals the cancer that was always there. The police were always lying. It took a protest for them to actually lie out loud. Your mayor was always lying to you about something. It just took this protest for him to lie out loud. A lot of people are going through PTSD right now, watching our mayor Kelly Gertz, like trying to make excuses for himself and his behavior. And like some of the stories he told people initially, that's going to be a problem. 
the best thing is just don't defend him. He's a liar who occasionally lies when it's convenient for him to lie. That's happening. And now we're going to talk a little bit about monuments, right? So here's the thing about protests and monuments. Let me bring this one up. We, there are some people who thought that we actually, the protest was going to work, just the protest, because this is what we did to the monument. We really showed white supremacy what's going on. But you have to understand that you're dealing with an institution. And even these monuments are institutions. So when you're dealing with an institution, it's built to withstand a few flare-ups, right? So this is probably about six o'clock on Sunday night. That's a Confederate monument in downtown Athens, Georgia. This is that same Confederate monument. Um, this is that same Confederate monument at nine o'clock the next morning. If you can't tell, there's been a crew that's come in, that's come in and cleaned it all up. Um, it's pretty much by nine o'clock the next morning, it was back to where it is because that's what happens when you're fighting an institution. It's built for a flare up. And I put together a nice little graphic that shows kind of a timeline of this because this is a very important lesson. Uh, I don't know if you can see it if you're not, if you're watching this on your phone or something, but it's, it's, this is an important lesson about the struggle and protest. So Sunday evening is the picture on the left, graffiti. Yeah, we really took it down. Early Monday morning, there's a crew out there cleaning it up. And by 9 a.m. Monday morning, it's gone. Like all signs of the protests are gone. That's what happens when you're fighting an institution. So institutions are built for flare-ups. And I first got this insight when I was listening to a, a colleague by the name of Dr. Tommy Curry, who came out with a fantastic book called The Man Not, that everyone who cares about black people and racial justice should read. It's dense, but it's worth it. And it's called The Man Not. But he said, look, institutions are built for, to withstand flare-ups and to outlast the energies and the passions of those people who are fighting against it. So one of the major virtues of the Black Power movement is that they actually installed within the institution as a functioning part of the institution with its own line item and budget, like African-American studies departments and Black, and black studies departments. And that's how you win. Like in Emory, Emory University, they have a Holocaust um, studies department at Emory University. I don't even know if they have look. So I'm just saying that if you're going to win, you install yourself within the institution because the institution is built to withstand the occasional flare up. Right? So the goal should be, I think in Athens, it should be a white terrorism museum. Museum of white terrorism. Curated by moi. I would just need a few rooms because there are some fascinating records about, um, you know, the terror that black people have lived under that the people need to know. Because in a functioning democracy, the way you kind of get propaganda over is through omission, through what you don't teach, right? So in order to memorialize this event well, um, we need to actually fill in the holes in our history. Right, so like I need in a well ordered world, I think it'd be good for the nation if I were allowed to curate a, a, a museum of white terrorism. I have some ideas about that. It can even be Athens specific because we were terrorists, 
Like, there's a great book called Behind the Mask of Chivalry about the Athens clan. And it's got all the same institutions that were there um, in the 20s and 30s that, that are here today because institutions don't die like people do. They just kind of survive and reproduce and they have their own reproduction mechanism. And unless you've actually invaded uh, that reproductive mechanism and, and, and change it from a, like a pretty profound standpoint, it's still the same institution. Churches haven't changed and papers haven't changed and all the, the commercial incentives that, that distort and bring on uh, uh, white supremacy haven't really been intervened upon yet. So you need me, you need to institutionalize an intervention by someone, either me or someone I pick to curate this museum of white terrorism. Right? So um, you're fighting an institution. That means you need to become an institution yourself and preferably get yourself embedded in it without being captured by it. So you need to, uh, it's, it's a puzzle. It is a puzzle, but like that's the puzzle you, you, you're, uh, you're, you're trying to figure out if you really care about justice because the institution's built to outlast the flare-up, the occasional flare-up. All right. And also, police reports are fiction. Police reports are fiction. And it's very important. I think the, the best thing that came out of the demonstration, the protest, was having both the mayor, the city manager, and the police all come together and lie about the protesters. I think that's a fantastic educational experience for the protesters. Probably more educational than anything anyone said at the protest. Because now you have to wonder, what else are they lying to me about? Lots. Lots. Also, I actually don't think the mayor was acting. Uh, I mean, I think he showed horrible judgment because we don't understand rights. And if you don't understand rights, then it's really easy to... Um, to infringe upon them, he he instituted, the, you know, the mayor. Everyone's paying past the buck, and the buck stops nowhere. The mayor, the city manager, um, uh, instituted a curfew, right? Granted by emergency powers because of the COVID um, business and just what, the way our charter is structured. He instituted a curfew, which pretty much shut down downtown and criminalized all activities downtown after nine o'clock. Now that you have to understand is an escalation of violence. Even if you don't shoot the gun, you give grounds and cover to the people who are going to come in and shoot the guns. So the chief of police, at, you know, a little bit after midnight, decided, all right, well, I'm tired of being here and let's tear gas them out. And, and now the chief of police has cover because there was a curfew. So the mayor instituted an, uh, this curfew. And I think actually kind of COVID-19 quarantine loosened the jar on this. I was never actually comfortable with the COVID-19 quarantine. I don't like the way it was um, administered. I don't like the rhetoric that was used. I, when we, we curtailed people's rights to assembly, which is an enormous right, the right to take a public space and assemble and, and, and make your feelings known, which is an enormous right and the road to serfdom. And I did not like that one bit. And I said so, you know, I wrote letters. And, but this, I think what had happened, it loosened the jar. So now the mayor thinks anytime there's a safety concern, it's legitimate just to vacate people's rights. 
<laughs> just uh, completely neuter people's rights. And I think that's a problem. That's a problem for freedom. That's a problem for justice. But it's a problem that some Democrats don't care about. And I'll say that again. Some Democrats don't care about because we have a huge contingent within the Democratic Party of people who really actually aren't, don't have the stomach for political contest or risk, right? Anytime you think safety is the most important thing, you should get out of my politics. Because if you think safety is the, important, the most important thing, either one, you won't actually go outside because outside is full of other people who are basically dangerous, can frustrate your plans. Or two, what you'll do is push for a totalitarian state. So when you go outside, you will feel as if you are as safe as you are in your home. home. Right? So that's what's at stake. That's what's stake. People who think that safety is the most important thing as opposed to freedom or justice will either like not go out or if they go out, police and be casual about policing. So what happened is I think a lot of these people got in the mayor's ear and said like, well, you know, these people with guns, they might cause problems. I've heard about boogaloos and I, they, they, these guys are, these guys are going to cause problems. It turns out that the six guys did not cause problems. What caused problems was the curfew, which escalated. Uh, which criminalized a range of activities and then gave cover to the police firing tear gas hours later, right? So Democrats advocating for curfews caused Republicans to shoot tear gas into black people. This isn't the first time something like this happens. There's an analog to the crime bill. I read this great book by Leah Goodmark. Uh, on decriminalizing domestic violence. And she's like, yeah, turns out that criminalizing domestic violence doesn't actually make families better or get rid of domestic violence. It just creates like more criminals. But what happened was there was the rhetoric um, uh, in the 80s about how we need to do uh, 70s and 80s about how we need to criminalize these perpetrators of violence. And then the Republicans um, said, you know what? We have a great idea about that. <laughs> and this all led up to the crime bill of 94 and the violence against um, the Violence Against Women Act. Once again, none of this stuff actually uh, disproportionately helped uh, intimate partner violence, but it did a lot to criminalize just behavior and, and weaponize the criminal justice system. So that's kind of what happened here, right? So Democrats complaining about safety go to where they go, which is the police um, and power because we don't teach people about rights. And when you don't, and when you don't teach people about rights, it's easy to take them away. I'll say that again. When you don't teach people about rights, it's easy to uh, take them away. And this will happen from Democrats, right? So I you know, happen to be writing a, a rather thoughtful piece right now. It's also my dissertation on the plurality of rights and how they can be derived and why property is a very important right, but it it's also needs to be balanced with the right to assembly. And it's not an absolute right. It's It's a right that can be checked by other rights. Um, and so that's what happened in Athens politics. I hope this has been educational. I hope you've learned that when you're fighting an institution, the institution's designed to withstand a flare up. I hope you've learned that these curfews are an actually escalation of violence. Even if you don't pull the trigger, when you install and criminalize behavior, you're actually legitimizing the people who will execute the violence. So what you've done when you install this curfew is escalate the situation in terms of violence. What else should you have learned from this? Uh, I think you should vote for Andrea Farnham in District 8.
for the county commission. I think that's very important. And because she actually gets to this. And I don't think a lot of, I don't think anyone else does. What else is important? Good. Thank you for your time. And I will see you next week. Peace. If you appreciate the work I do every week and you think that I should continue to do it because I'm giving you the quality of political knowledge and insight that will help you not squander your life and kind of rescue meaning from it, then go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month, or make one enormous donations. I like the monthlies because it allows me to budget more, and that'll help me, you know, with a marketing budget or getting better equipment that works all the time. Because a lot of, in a lot of ways, freedom means having equipment that works every time you turn it on. <laughs> and I want to be a free Negro, so. Um, if you like what I do, go to funkyacademic.com and contribute. Thanks often comes in the form of cash. And the site takes 